0: All right, in this video, we're going to wrap up our discussion of Chapter 5 of Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand and Reason by talking about polemics and especially mysticism versus skepticism as denials of reason. Stay tuned. Okay, to this point in OPAR, we have skipped the sections on polemics where dr picoff is attacking or contrasting the objectivist view with other important views in the history of philosophy and i wanted to now tackle polemics and so in this section it's mysticism versus skepticism uh, but i think it's a good opportunity to circle back to some of the other ideas and i want to start out by just asking a more general question which is what is the value of polemics and the primary value i think is not to refute bad views, but to gain clarity on correct views. And the basic point is that the that to really grasp what Ayn Rand is saying, you need to see it in contrast to alternatives. And so being able to get okay, what is the alternative view of metaphysics that uh, what are alternative views of metaphysics, what are alternative views of the nature of knowledge, what are alternative views of the right method of acquiring and validating knowledge and the, i think the clearer you get on these the clearer you get on what ayn Rand is saying and one reason why that's important is because it's very easy to slip into some of these views ourselves uh in leonard Peikoff's course understanding objectivism he goes into the ways in which intrinsicism and subjectivism and then rationalism and empiricism are they're very tempting and one way you can see the objectivist view of objectivity is as it's recognizing what's good in the other views so if you just take intrinsicism versus subjectivism in intrinsicism it's a concern with reality we got to get reality the way it really is and objectivism agrees with that 100% and then it's um, with subjectivism it's that no the consciousness has an identity as a certain kind of process And objectivism agrees with that, too, in that you have to take into account the process and things associated with the nature of consciousness, like the fact that knowledge is contextual. And what objectivism is saying is that, all right, let's get what's right about these views and reject what's wrong. And so if you and you can see how, though, given that there's something right in each view, you can easily overtake the stuff that's not right. Or at least it can seem that you're doing that. So, for instance, I think a lot of the kind of debates within objectivism, part of what makes them difficult, I'm not saying this is the fundamental cause, um, the, but part of what makes them difficult sometimes to think about is that, yeah, can look, is this person being principled or, dog, or dogmatic? Is this person recognizing the contextual nature of principles or are they being subjective? And those can be really hard assessments to make. And again, I'm not saying that, oh, it's just everybody's just misunderstanding the other and whatever. That's not my point. But my point is that um, it's precisely that the wrong views have an element of the truth that makes them plausible. And that therefore, we want to be really conscious of what those views are and not let any of the poison into our thinking. And so I think that's really the core of why it's important to really go into these polemical sections and just as an aside one of the interesting things about this book is uh Leonard has talked about like his view was to deliberately write a textbook and that it wasn't aimed at being you know eloquent gripping reading but one of the things that I I think uh certainly I see is that some of his most eloquent writing in the book comes up in these polemical chapters, where he's able to get the way in which false views that seem diametrically opposed are really kind of two sides of the same false coin. And there's a lot of really beautiful observations, beautifully articulated. So uh, let's start with some of that. All right, so I'm not going to give uh, a full summary of each of these sections, but I do want to give a high level view of what's covered and so let's start with metaphysics and metaphysics we get two forms of rejecting the basic axioms we get idealism and materialism so idealism is the idea that there's two realities a higher spiritual reality and then we get materialism the rejection of consciousness and what leonard argues is that with um idealism you have consciousness without existence and then with materialism it's existence without consciousness. And of course, from the objectivist view, there could be such a thing as existence with no consciousness, but insofar as we're talking about knowledge or a theory, it's the rejection, it's the you basically have a theory about existence that rejects consciousness. Then, and this next point does uh, the theory of concepts, we don't get its own polemical section, but I think it's important or valuable to bring in, we get that there's realism And this is the kind of Platonic realism, or in a much better form, Aristotelian realism. And it's the idea that abstractions exist in the world apart from the human mind. And then we get nominalism that says, no, they absolutely don't. They're creations of the mind that don't reflect external facts. Then we have two views of what is knowledge, intrinsicism and subjectivism. And intrinsicism says that knowledge is a passive grasp of an external object. An object that exists apart from the mind and then subjectivism is the view that no it's that uh consciousness what knowledge is is an active creation of consciousness then we get kind of two methods for valid acquiring and validating knowledge and that is rationalism and empiricism so the rationalist says up with reason down with sense experience and then the empiricist says down with reason and up with sense experience. It's that uh, you have what we can count on, what we can rely on is that which we can observe, not that which is inferred from sense experience, or at least that is downplayed. And then finally, we get to uh, two different views of reason or the validity of reason. One says that we have a faculty higher than reason, more powerful than reason and that's mysticism. It's an unerring, automatic form of knowledge, and that, that that's what gives us uh, real knowledge, certainly about the most important issues in life, or skepticism, which denies the efficacy of reason and says, no, we don't have anything superior to it, but in order to reach important truths, we would need that because reason by itself can't allow us to reach important truths. And... So then we could ask the question, well, how do these different views relate to one another? And in one sense, um, there you couldn't just line them up in effect in different columns and say, you know, typically you'd get uh, idealism leading to realism in theory of concepts leading to intrinsicism leading to rationalism reading to leading to mysticism and on the other side materialism, leading to nominalism, leading to subjectivism, leading to empiricism, leading to uh, skepticism. And there are there is kind of a general tendency for those uh, views to come grouped together, but there, you definitely can't um, particularly on the the side of subjectivism, um, you'll find exceptions all over the place. You can't just assume, well, I've got one piece of somebody's view, and I can therefore predict every other element. So, you know, for example, uh, Leonard makes the point that Kant um, is and views himself, at least for most concepts of having an Aristotelian uh, view of universals, um, but that he's a subjectivist, and he's a subjectivist in a very major sense. Or you could take somebody like Marx. And so Marx, obviously, is a materialist, um, but you couldn't exactly classify him as a rationalist or an empiricist. And he's not a skeptic, he's what Aynron called a neo mystic. Uh, or you could take somebody like Hobbes, and Hobbes is, you know, a materialist, anomalous, a subjectivist, um, an empiricist, but you wouldn't call him a skeptic, or at least there's out, al- I mean, there, I think there's arguably elements of skepticism. But the point is, um, that the that Leonard's not kind of presenting these are the two alternatives in the history of philosophy and everybody falls on one side or the other um, though there are reasons that these tend to go together in various ways though it's interesting to then think about um, well so objectivism's view and and this is what Leonard covers in the epilogue and Ayn Rand talks about it in many places and it's really kind of the uh, an aspect of the theme of Leonard Peikoff's book, Ominous Parallels, which is that um, objectivism views history as a duel between Plato and Aristotle. And so Plato is, I mean, he's the consistent, you know, from idealism all the way to mysticism. And you think, well, Aristotle's the exponent of reason, shouldn't it be kind of a three-way duel? What about the skeptic-subjectivist side of the equation? And I think the issue is from objectivism's perspective, subjectivism and skepticism are dead ends that they can like knock things down and they arise to poke holes and bad arguments by the idealist, intrinsicist, mystical um, side and the pro-reason side, but that by themselves that they're, they don't lead anywhere. They're not historically sustainable. And in fact, um, you know, the, I think the most interesting or sophisticated uh, perspective on this is the one that Leonard Peikoff outlines in his book, The Dim Hypothesis, where he gets, you know, the kind of a, a view that rejects integration, which is going to be a subjectivist skeptical view, that that is unsustainable historically, and that it's always going to be some form of what he calls misintegration that is going to be sustained or uh, a proper view of integration. But that, you um, that subjectivism and skepticism these are disintegrating uh, perspectives on human knowledge and that human societies cannot live or tolerate for long that kind of situation and so another way to think about it then is um, because subjectivism and skepticism are dead ends this is really helps us shed light on Kant's unique role in the history of philosophy so that if we think well it's a duel between Plato and Aristotle objectivism view is that Kant is on the Platonic side but notice how if you read the epilogue to Opar and maybe you haven't yet uh, because I'm jumping way ahead to the end of the book uh, Leonard talks about exactly what his role is and this is I find fascinating because it's essentially he's safeguarding um, or he's using subjectivism and skepticism to safeguard Intrinsicism or mysticism. So, this is how Leonard puts it is on page 456 to 457. In order to solve the problem of universals, Kant held, a new metaphysics and epistemology are required. The metaphysics identified in objectivist terms is the primacy of consciousness in its social variant. The epistemology is social subjectivism and its corollary skepticism. This approach left Kant free to declare as beyond challenge the essence of the intrinsicist ethics, duty, i.e. imperatives issued by nominal reality itself. Kant's uh, Copernican revolution reaffirmed the fundamental ideas of Plato. And so from objectivism's perspective, the real issue in philosophy, if you want to boil it down, is reason versus mysticism. And you can see all of these other ideas as either philosophic attempts to buttress mysticism and provide it with a real basis or as an attempt to uh, how would you put it as an attempt to undermine reason and thereby directly or indirectly deliberately or not deliberately buttress and support mysticism so in the end it's reason versus mysticism and that's kind of the the perspective and then we can see all of these polemical views as Are they pro as ways of knocking down the case for reason, and and thereby leaving us with the only alternative, which is some form of mysticism. So even though I've just said that the issue, the the fundamental issue in philosophy is mysticism versus reason, um, I do want to say a little bit about skepticism, because uh, I think for some people, certainly for me. I was never tempted towards skepticism i mean even as a very young teenager when i first encountered it like there was something that just seemed really wrong about it and i had this idea that no reason should be able to read lead us to knowledge i mean i can remember having that before i even encountered ayn Rand, probably at the age of 14 and um but i had trouble answering skeptical arguments and so i want to say a little bit about how objectivism thinks about skepticism and one of the interesting things is how little Ayn Rand directly talks about skepticism. She says a few things about Hume, a few things uh, directed directly at skeptical arguments. And, um, but it's usually in passing and she doesn't treat it as a major issue if you contrast that to with how much she wrote uh, about somebody like Kant. And I think it's, the basic issues from objectivism's perspective, there's not really a special job of answering skeptics. The job is establishing knowledge. And um, and and so from that perspective, it's not like, all right, now you gotta trot out after that your 10 different arguments against skeptics. Um, but that said, there we do see the real answer to skeptics uh, throughout OPAR so far. So remember from objectivism's perspective, there is no such question as does man have knowledge? Can man reach knowledge? That by the time you get to the level of philosophizing, you have to know a lot of stuff. The question is, well, how do you separate the valid from the invalid? And uh, and so you can't. Skepticism doesn't even get off the ground. But then, if we look at in uh, metaphysics part of how objectivism is going to be able to sidestep the whole issue of skepticism is that because it insists on the primacy of existence and rejects the primacy of conscious consciousness and in particular the prior certainty of consciousness the idea that our starting point is well i know that i'm aware um, or that i know that i'm conscious but am i conscious of something am i conscious of the external world um and you, we don't get trapped in kind of the Descartes problem of, all right, well, I have uh, consciousness. Now does it, um, do I, is the world real or something like that? It's no, first you're aware um, that existence exists. And it's only from grasping that, that you can then say, okay, all right, I'm, I'm conscious. So there's not, there's not even a foothold uh, for skepticism to get involved there. Then it's once we get to the senses, it's that objectivism insists both on the um, primacy of consciousness, but then that consciousness has identity. That in coming to aware, it has consciousness undergoes a process and that that's not grounds for dismissing consciousness. It is the precondition of consciousness. The precondition of being aware is to undergo a certain process and that that process contributes something. Consciousness has an idea, identity that contributes something. And so that's where we get um, the answer to all the skeptical attacks, and including objectivism's insistence on the form-object distinction—that we're aware of objects in a certain form, but that it's aware of those objects—and it's also in the senses that we get um, that what what are what we're aware of directly is the perceptual level. That's the given. We're directly aware of objects, and so that's going to answer um, a lot of. Hume's kind of attacks. Hume, if you'll recall, we talked about starts with, well, we have sensations. And how do we ever get to entity? And how do we ever get to causality? And that all of that is uh, gone, if what we're directly aware of is entities. Then, um, at the level of epistemology proper, it's, okay, so once you've established something by reason, rooted in sense perception, using the method of objectivity with reduction and integration, if somebody comes along then and says, well, maybe you made a mistake, that that is arbitrary and the arbitrary is out. Arbitrary doubt goes in the same category as arbitrary assertions because it is an assertion. It's an assertion that maybe you've made an error and you can't jump from the fact that man is capable of error to maybe you made an error. In this particular case or in this particular argument. And so that your attitude towards a skeptic who says, well, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you made a mistake. How do you know you exist? Maybe you're a brain in that vat and there's a scientist playing with a whole bunch of things. No, all of that goes in the same category as an Alex Jones conspiracy theorist who says, yeah, well, maybe I don't even know what his conspiracy theories are. And if I did, I wouldn't want to uh, regurgitate them here. But it's that there's absolutely that's the kind of status that a skeptic deserves once you've established um, your your knowledge all the way back to your foundations and if you have a solid foundation you've validated your knowledge then there's no room for arbitrary doubt just as there's no room for arbitrary belief and therefore there is no room for skeptics so in the last video we talked about the way in which Galt's speech makes the life or death stakes of even the most abstract ideas in philosophy real. And in particular, um, we talked about the way in which Ayn Rand viewed evil ideas as, or she viewed these ideas as really trying to justify placing the I wish over the it is, which she regarded as the essence of evil. And as she put it in Philosophic Detection, she had a view that I think is important and profound that evil systems of philosophy are systems of rationalization. And it's precisely that they're trying to rationalize putting the I wish over the it is. And in the, I mean, the worst form, what they're doing, the wish that they're trying to rationalize is the wish for power and the wish for destruction. But I think it can be a mistake to only see philosophy in those terms, or at least there can be a tendency to view bad ideas, the ideas that we're talking about in these polemical sections, as obviously wrong, and obviously monstrous. And I don't think that that's right. I think if you really contend with them and see the logic behind them, um, that you get you one thing you should get, if you really understand the ideas and the arguments offered for them is their plausibility. And I think that that's rooted in the fact of well, two facts. One is that the truth is really hard to conceptualize. Philosophic truths are really hard to fully identify and articulate. And that then the failures and the flaws in attempts to articulate them, including good ones like Aristotle's, then that makes plausible the counterattacks on them. And so, you know, the plausibility of subjectivism is the flaws in intrinsicism. And the plausibility of intrinsicism is the flaws in subjectivism or the weaknesses in subjectivism. And so um, I think it's, it's to really get these polemical sections and have them stand in your mind as real knowledge, you want to see, well, what was it that made this plausible? And so I just want to take one example that I think is something that if you just hear on the face of it, it could sound crazy. But if you actually get what led the thinker to it, you can get its plausibility. And that is idealism. So idealism is the idea, recall that there's two worlds. There's the higher spiritual world that's superior to this physical material world and so that view is really first articulated by plato and if you'll recall when we were going through aristotle's uh, induction of objectivity one of the points we made is he was able to cash in on plato's distinction of what we would put as percepts and concepts between you know ideas and what we gain the world that we see through our senses and if you recall the, what led play to this, to this insight was recognizing how dramatically different these two phenomena are. So, you know, with our ideas, it's their um, abstract and spirit or uh, mental, they're not physical, that, um, they don't change versus the changing world around us, that they're singular versus the mul- uh, stand for a multiplicity. He gets that there's all of these ones known by reason, ones known by the senses. He gets that there's this dramatic difference. And so well, look if these things are so dramatically different, uh, our ideas and what we perceive in the world around us, then while well, ideas have to refer to something, they clearly can't refer to this world because our, this world is so diametrically different from it. Well, therefore, they have, to, uh, they have to refer to some other dimension, some higher spiritual world. And so, I mean, what Plato's really doing is he's grasping something important, which is that um, there has to be a mind, in effect, that there has to be a consciousness regarding things in a certain way in order to get it at abstractions, but he's projecting that out into reality. And that is a like understandable error. And I'm not saying it's a fully honest one, even on Plato's part, but you can really see the plausibility of it if you're thinking about it that way, and that it would be completely non-obvious, um, to say the least, for him to grasp this difference and then go, oh yeah, what we're doing is we're just omitting measurements of percepts. Like that is, um, that th- there's no reason to regard that as the default view, to say the least. And so I, I think the wider lesson here is that um, these polemical views are clarifying and helpful, but they're clarifying, but we're getting them in kind of objectivism's essentialized form that's really meant to bring out their flaws, but that's not the form in which they're presented. They're presented as people really trying to get to the truth or at least really trying to make it seem like they're trying to get to the truth. And so I think it's this is kind of a a final perspective one should have on these ideas, but you need to get at well, what are the arguments for them and why did people think that they were really plausible. And part of doing that then is to think, all right, where have I made similar errors? So precisely because these views are plausible and precisely because Ayn Rand's view is so radical and different, it is very easy, I think, to even for an objectivist to fall into um any of these polemical views and so even even something like the two-world view even something like idealism I think can really show up in your thinking and you might think well how is that like what objectivist is just going to go around and say yeah well I accidentally tripped fell and ended up in a higher dimension um but if you think about actually so what would be an example there's uh when the whole like black lives matter and anti-racism became a became a big thing. I had a lot of conversations with people who were at different institutions or jobs where really bad versions of this kind of anti-racist and really anti-enlightenment, anti-individualist views were being promoted, actively promoted in their organizations. And um, then the issue is, well, should I speak out? And people were really thinking and grappling with, um, well, what should I do? What uh, should I speak out or not? And I'll say a little bit about uh, what I think the right way to think about this is. And I'm not saying everybody who decided that no, I shouldn't speak out um, was falling into a two world view. But there are definitely elements of something that I would kind of summarize this way. Well, look, in a perfect world in Atlantis, of course, you know, like the moral is the practical, and it, I need to speak out to uh, defend my values. But in the world as it is, it's being so irrational. Um, if I speak out, I'm gonna be branded as a racist, I could lose this job. I could lose I, I could never find work again in my industry. And so that that's who could tolerate? That would be a real sacrifice um, that I can't tolerate. And so, yeah, in Atlantis, um, that would be, you know, something to do. But, hey, you've got to be practical. Now, I'm not saying they put it exactly that way. I think that makes the air a little too glaring. But there's definitely this kind of view of, um, in effect, principles are good for it. So if you think about the kind of Marxist view, right, it's they put the other world not in another dimension, but in this kind of vague future of view. I think Ayn Rand has a line in Galt's speech about, like, um, you know, the world of your great-grandchildren or something is when they promise you rewards. And there can be that kind of view, I think, in objectivism. It's like, yeah, in some indefinite future where um, people actually respect rationality, then, it you know, the moral is the practical and I need to stand up for it. But in today's world as it is, um, it you you know, being rational can destroy your values. So what? Uh, let me be clear on what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that, you know, Everybody who said no, I can't speak up here, was embracing a two-world view or rejecting the moral and the practical. Um, and I certainly think that there's a real question of what does it mean to speak up when your values are attacked in a situation like this. And that there's a big difference between somebody who said, "Well, look, I, you know, talked to my supervisor and let him know what I think of this training" or "her think of this training," versus "oh, I, you know, went and wrote a Facebook." post-denouncing my company and, you know, try to start an insurrection at work. Um, there, there can be a lot of questions about what speaking up for your values requires. But I definitely, what I want to highlight is that you can see that there's ways in which a kind of two world view, which is, I think, in many ways, the seeming like least plausible thing an objectivist could embrace, can show up in your own thinking. And so you need to be aware of it and on guard for it and not view all of these polemical ideas well these are obviously wrong and they're really just ways that you know evil people try to put over their evil versus that they can be plausible traps that even good people can fall into in uh, more or less subtle ways so that's it for this video and that is it for chapter five on reason we are going to dive in next time on chapter on man and uh from here on out be in the kind of ethical and later political and aesthetic realm so this has been the final point on epistemology though as we'll as we'll see um objectivism's ethics is heavily epistemological so we're going to be cashing in on a lot of the ideas that we've already talked about and so uh until then be sure to like this video and subscribe to the youtube channel. And if you want to stay in contact, the best way is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.